0: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. David O'Brien. On this episode, I'm talking to Brooke Erin Duffy about not getting paid to do what you love, gender, social media, and aspirational work, which is published by Yale University Press. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Brooke Erin Duffy, who is Assistant Professor in Communications at Cornell, about her new book, not getting paid to do what you love gender social media and aspirational work so welcome to the podcast
1: thank you so much Dave I'm really looking forward to chatting with you today
0: this uh, this is a great book um, it's both kind of really interesting really well written and crucially it speaks to a really important um, social issue that um, obviously that you know it, it's it's based on America but I think is is a kind of a global concern um, and I'll be interested to kind of um, Introduce the book and and the kind of the broader project um, that the book came from um, to the listeners. So I wonder if you could kind of sketch out um, your research interests and I guess your kind of um, academic career before writing the book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I hold a PhD in communication um, and much of my work has focused on the media and culture industries um situating those against the backdrop of sort of larger changes in um the cultures, technologies, and political economies of media. And so previous to this, uh, I did my dissertation work on the women's magazine industry, and I was looking at how the rise of digital and social media, and again, this was about six years ago, um, was shifting both the the production culture of women's magazines as well as the content. And through that project, I continued to hear about competition from new forms of, you know, quote unquote, amateur cultural producers and fashion bloggers, um, other content creators that were sort of launching independent ventures. And I, you know, I found this kind of really interesting and at the time understudied as a way to look into the larger realm of independent cultural labor in this moment of digital and social media change. And so that's what kind of led me into this project.
0: I mean, what, what's really interesting, I guess, is that. Um, in media sociology or, you know, the kind of broader media studies, um, people are kind of used to sort of social media, um, as a topic of study. But in the kind of like work occupations, um, field, there's, there's, I guess, as you, you identify, you know, kind of less written about this. And one of the kind of, I suppose, the problems of the book is, is what kind of work are we actually talking about? You know, what, what kind of occupation, what job, what, almost what vocation, um, was the kind of, I suppose, the cluster of activities that comes under um, social media work, particularly around uh, fashion, which is obviously the kind of core case study.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really this kind of emergent cluster of professions that uh, continue to kind of unfold and, and evolve um, against the backdrop of digital and social media. And these are the types of professions that have gotten a lot of mainstream media attention as these kind of dream jobs and fantastic careers, and I'm talking about um, fashion blogging, YouTube blogging, and now the the new kind of vogue term is is influencers, and so individuals who seem to have their own independent ventures where they're creating and producing content, and you know this is this is seen in a lot of ways as these very easy, effortless professions that people just fell into. And I really wanted to highlight that, whether it's blogging, blogging, Instagramming, or larger forms of freelance work, this is essentially very time-intensive and precarious labor.
0: And obviously the big, I guess, kind of theoretical umbrella that this um, precarious, time-intensive um, presentation of self, kind of work sits under is this aspirational labour idea, um, and, and I'm, I wonder if you kind of sketch that that term out, and particularly actually in the intersection with gender. You know, gender is in the title of the book, but all, also it's I think inseparable from from aspirational labour as a concept.
1: Absolutely. Um, so I use the term aspirational labour to describe the the investments of of time of energy of capital, specifically economic capital, that people make in pursuit of this career where, you know, the new Siren song is to get a career where we can get paid to do what we love. And so it's this future-oriented form of work that tends to go undercompensated or often uncompensated. And people pursue this in hopes that they will pay off. And in the meantime, as part of this aspirational labor, they continue to consume and promote various branded goods. And so the forward looking nature of this makes it, in a lot of ways, and I mapped this out early in the book, kind of similar to what scholars Kuhn and Corrigan call hope labor or Neff's term venture labor. But for me, I found it really important to highlight the gendered nature of this. And so I use the term aspiration to draw out the gendered nature of this and the important continuities with earlier forms of work, of status seeking, of visibility. And so in particular, I, I spend a chapter tracing the lineage from aspirational consumption, sort of this idea where you know, I I come into a room and I drop my Gucci bag as a way to convey my status to people. Um, and you know, trace this back to, to Veblen's notion of conspicuous consumption. To contemporary forms of showing one's visibility and status through the work that they do, and in particular having this again, dream job where one's labor and leisure bleed into one another.
0: Yeah. That's, and- the second oh, okay. chapter, uh, I think, is really strong on, on that latter point that you've made about, I guess, the kind of the inequalities of consumption and production that mark consumer culture and how these inequalities, I guess, carry over into aspirational laborers' lives as well.
1: Yeah. And I found, you know, I, I focus specifically on gendered content creation and one of the reasons... Um, is to highlight the, the continuity, the historical continuity and social continuity with earlier forms of gendered labor that are rendered invisible. Um, and so the book focuses exclusively on female content creators, but you know, I kind of um, spent some time in the introduction and also in the conclusion suggesting the ways in which I'm focusing on this particular subset of the population, but aspirational labor is something that we see in various forms of content creation and and, and labor in general amidst this kind of larger precarious economy where we're all encouraged to use social media in hopes to render ourselves
0: eminently employable. I mean, it's funny, actually. One of the things that, um, I mean, there, there are lots of things I like about the kind of the ethical orientation in the text, but one of the things I liked in particular was the epilogue where you kind of get to grips with your own position vis-a-vis aspirational labor and and one of the questions I, I sent you was this kind of sense of are academics aspirational laborers too then you know does this almost kind of apply um I, we shouldn't call ourselves content creators i guess but you know to academics who are creating content and you know do you have those social media and presentation of self as as work kind of pressures i guess
1: yeah, it was one of these things that, you know, all along um, in all of my research, you know, I have tremendous respect for the young people that I'm interviewing. And, you know, I state very explicitly, I'm a critical researcher, but I'm situating these practices against a wider backdrop of economic uncertainty and these larger discourses where social media offers us kind of these these glimmers of, of hope in this uncertain employment economy. Um, but I have this... This moment where I was interviewing um, one of the the bloggers, and unlike a lot of the people who have spent months and even years um, trying to gain a following, she had come into success in a relatively short period of time. And, and we were talking about this, and we kind of got onto some of her best, best practices. And she mentioned to me how she works at a PR farm, which is um, important because she already has kind of learned about these from her own professional career networks, but she mentioned how she thinks about the timing of her tweets. And she says, you know, in order to get an audience, I don't know what the timing was, but you know, afternoon is best or when people are kind of bored at work and they're playing around and they go on Twitter. And so I was like, Oh, that's interesting. I wonder if I should be doing that. And I had this moment of kind of what am I thinking? Um, You know, I'm an academic. Why am I paying attention to this? And you know, as, as I thought more about it and as kind of the, the interviews continued, I realized how very similar the practices that these young people are doing in order to gain a career in um, social media and creative industries are to what I do and I would suggest what others do um, as academics. I mean, we're constantly prodded to share our research on various platforms, um, our Success in various rates, you know, certainly it doesn't matter how many Twitter follows I have. But you think about, you know, I'm a junior scholar. What are the various metrics that show success or influence? So, thinking about whether it's h citations or other forms of scholarly metrics, and also the, you know, the the networking, the the self promotion. Um, it was really striking to me that this, this sort of aspirational labor subjectivity felt so very close to me. And so, you know, that was kind of a a fun way to end the book is reflecting on how similar the practices in academia are to the culture industries. And I know Roz Gill has a a fascinating um, piece on this that I found really useful for thinking about this in terms of both the discourses of doing what you love, but again, also this wider moment of uncertainty, which we see both in the culture industries, but also in academia.
0: I mean, this doing what you love element, I think is is crucial to kind of understanding um, our our aspirational workers in, in, in things like fashion vlogging and, and kind of mm-hmm. lifestyle, social media. And um, one thing it'd be good to know more about is the kind of, I guess the motivations of uh, of these workers um, you know the kind of like wh- why do they do this stuff you know what what is the kind of the sense of um, of being able to do what you love you know what's the kind of yeah the, the sort of story behind their motivations
1: yes yeah, so I think you know in the in the early days um, of independent content creation there was these sort of narratives that people were pursuing amateur content creation for fun and in their leisure time. And it was a way for people to express themselves and and have an audience and so forth. Um, And I found through talking to content creators that it tends to get routed through the marketplace and kind of the the employment marketplace. And so people pursue these, these various forms of online content creation for various reasons, but often it's linked to this, you know, again, as we just mentioned, getting paid to do what you love, to have your dream job. And, you know, there's a larger sense of glamour associated with the culture industries. You know, these are considered fun and free and places where you can express yourself, but also get paid. But I think we're, we're really seeing a sort of ramping up of this idea of getting paid to do what you love with wider discourses of entrepreneurialism and independent employment. I mean, certainly, um, you know, Steve Jobs touted that at his Stanford commencement speech. And this narrative of of doing what you love has become so pervasive. Miyatoka Mitsu called it the the unofficial work mantra of our time. And I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I go into Wegmans, which is a grocery store, and they have um, employment posters suggesting, you know, working at Wegmans is a way to do what you love. And I think it puts a a nice gloss or a sheen on various employment circumstances, which are less than idealized. Um, but it's you know it's the same reason that people pursue creative industries again. This this idea that you can have autonomy, freedom, flexibility, an opportunity to make your mark, and all of these much venerated and, and idealized features. That are associated with with working in this kind of glamorous field.
0: But it's also a lot a lot of work. I mean, the the third chapter introduces um, this this really useful term, relational labor, um, which obviously you know is is affective, is emotional, is about networking, is about visibility. You know, it, it alludes to kind of that sense of you know when when should I be tweeting, you know, these kind of things. And it's a lot of effort, you know, and it's full of kind of um, I guess kind of contradictions, actually, in terms of. You know, it's a lot of work to do what you love. It's a lot. Um, it's a lot of demands. And you see this with your with your interviews. You know, they're quite reflexive about when questioned. That kind of sense of doing what you love seems to involve a lot of things that they don't actually love.
1: Yes. So, yeah, I highlight a lot of the kind of emotional labor that goes into this. And Nancy Bayman, Internet researcher, has coined this term relational labor, to describe how certain professionals, and she's looking at musicians, attempt to harness um, social relationships across various platforms in order to build a fan base, in order to promote oneself. Um, and I found this very pervasive among the bloggers, bloggers, influencers, in that they do an incredible amount of work. They devote their their time, energy and attention to engaging and, you know, engaging is such a buzz term, Um, but building relationships with people offline and specifically online. And I was struck by kind of the dedication of feeling like you can't step away from your blog or your Instagram feed for more than a few hours because you have this audience and this fear that, you know, if if you're not creating and uploading content, you're going to lose your audience. If you're not engaging with them and responding to them and liking their comments. So there's, there's really this culture of reciprocity where bloggers will start these kind of informal coalitions where they'll constantly be creating or providing feedback on each other's content and so forth. Um, And constantly, trying to build a following and, you know, certainly this idea of a following or a um, network has become the way to monetize this. I mean, there's various terms, whether we want to call it a reputation economy or an attention economy for these people to get work, they need to show that they have a fan base. They need to have an audience And so I was really struck. I was at this um, conference for for female blogging aspirants and someone was talking about, you know, how can I, how can I get paid for this? And certainly one of the ways people get paid is through partnering with advertisers or sponsors. And someone said, you know, before, and this was years ago before the market was as saturated as it was, they said, you know, before you even think about reaching out to an advertiser Perspective advertiser, you need to have at least 10,000 followers on Twitter, on um, Facebook and so forth. And, you know, to, to think about the time and energy that goes into building enough relationships that you garner that kind of following, it's certainly not something, you know, just anyone can do, you need to be able to dedicate the time, you need to be able to have the resources to invest yourself in this in order to have this again audience base. And so this really gets downplayed. I mean, one of the things that was also emerged and I guess is also very similar to what we do as academics is um, when I asked people who have been able to turn this into a profession, like what's the most surprising thing? They said, you know, they had this idea that they would just be kind of taking pictures or writing content. They said, all they're doing is emailing. Um, so very unglamorous, but this, this part of the story doesn't get told in, the business element of it, which tends to, in a lot of ways, eclipse the creative element. Um, One of my informants said this quote, which really, you know, was kind of really compelling to me, but she said, you can be producing the best content around, but if people don't know you're the best, it doesn't matter because you have to be well marketed. And so I found that a lot of these content creators are spending a lot more time promoting themselves and marketing their content than they are actually creating it, which was, pretty
0: fascinating. And at the same time, they're almost kind of not allowed to say this or to make this clear in any way because they've got to be authentic, real and be ordinary. And that contradiction, which is, is kind of the subject of the fourth chapter, I found especially interesting. Um, so I wonder if you could kind of unpack that that sort of sense of it's clearly a job. It clearly has, you know, massive time demands, you know, in, in, in almost a kind of all-encompassing way. And yet the same I guess, set of practices are almost never allowed to be talked about.
1: No, they're very much concealed and kind of presented through, um, you know, what one of my informants described as, as the Instagram filter. Yeah. Yeah. But, but essentially authenticity and, you know, it certainly has a longer history um, in both kind of self-help ethos, but also in consumer culture. But you know, it's it's this emphasis on being authentic, being real, which has taken shape against reality TV, but also certainly in social media um, with such a pervasive discourse around the individuals I was talking to. And certainly when we look at various presses, it's kind of this this contradiction. Um, my colleague Jeff Foley calls it calculated authenticity, where you're encouraged to present yourself with, as real And authentic, but certainly it's it's a self-presentation. You're always thinking of audience. And so what I found really fascinating is the the individuals I spoke with tended to construct authenticity and relatability was a term as being you know just like us and us as the reader. And so they thought very carefully about how to project a sense of themselves that distance themselves from mainstream culture industries. So certainly, if you are a fashion blogger, you don't want to seem like a model, you don't want to seem like um, a magazine editor. And the same goes for YouTube, we often hear about, you know, these people are, again, just like us. But certainly, in the case of fashion bloggers, you know, I found that in order to actually become successful, you can't be just like us in that you need to have a tremendous amount um, of social and or economic capital. And I often use the case of the blonde salad content creator and she's, um, her name's Kira Faraney. And I think it was last year, there was a bunch of articles that came out and people had sent it to me where it was reported that she was making $8 million in 2016. And and that's just a staggering amount of money that it's difficult to wrap your head around. And, you know, a lot of the narratives it's again, well, she's just like us. And, you know, she produced this content and she became this incredible success story. But, you know, to argue she's just like us, if you look at her, she's, she looks like a model. She's stunningly gorgeous. She, um, went to an Italian fashion school. And so that provides you the right contacts and the right networks And so, you know, I I think this whole idea of realness and relatability is in a lot of ways a myth because you need to have access to the requisite financial and social capital to be able to participate in this kind of aspirational labor market. I mean, thinking about even some of the professionalization conferences I went to, these are not cheap. And so it's in a lot of ways, I, I kind of tie out some similarities between an unpaid internship. Thinking about what types of young people can afford to work for free for a couple of months, and it's the same types of people that can afford to create content for their channels, um, spend time networking, spend time purchasing the the clothes um, that provides the content for these sites, and it's it's not available to everyone, despite the the wider siren song of digital democratization.
0: Oh, yeah, but very much. I mean, this, you know, in the, in the British context, this would be a kind of classic class issue you know, yes. of, of how these things, I guess, you know, in the American context, you know, maybe stratification is the, is, is the more appropriate language. And, and that's really clear, I think, um, about who gets paid. Um, and, yeah, it, it, it's really interesting the kind of, like, I suppose the perfect storm that's needed for a person to be able to make money um, of that kind of having the time, having the look, having the networks, um, you know, but also having the realness. And and I guess, you know, one of the things I got uh, for the discussion about making money is having the kind of business savvy to know, you know, that's the way to ask for this. That's the right product to take. Yeah, it, it, it's it's kind of, yeah, it's it's really interesting the kind of, um, I suppose, economic rents that can be derived from this this kind of activity. So it'd be good to know you know, you've, you've gestured to this already, but yeah, who who is actually making money here? Not the $8 million a year, yeah. you know, who's kind of making a living and, and I suppose like, how are they doing it as well?
1: Um, so in terms of, of who's making a living, you know, I found it was a, a small proportion of my sample and the best data I found on this in terms of kind of generalizable data is from a few years ago, it was published in the Independent Fashion Bloggers Coalition, which was a, an online resource. Um, and it was pretty grim. It said fewer than 15% of bloggers are actually earning salary from their sites. And again, this was done before the market was so competitive. And it's not just that very few people are making money. It's it's that the system is so lopsided. And so um, about a year ago, there was this sort of back and forth in, in Digiday, this publication that, you know, advertisers are siphoning away their money to influencers and paying them $10,000 for a single post. And so, you know, we we hear about that in terms of the influencer, again, who are making an incredible amount of money, but this story very rarely gets told of those who are provided content and expected to Produce some kind of branded conversation around this content without any form of compensation. And so, um, you know, in terms of how people get paid, there's various streams of money or various streams of income. But in a lot of ways, it's from sponsored content and advertising. Um, And so, you know, I'll partner with, X brand, and I will showcase their products in my blog so many times a month to an audience of whatever it may be, um, which gets really sticky in terms of regulation, uh, which is a, a whole separate issue. But quite a few of the individuals I spoke with said that constantly brands are reaching out to them and asking them to hype their their content, their goods without any form of payment. And so it's this, this same narrative that has long sustained um, freelance journalism where you're working for exposure. And it happens both in terms of brands and advertisers reaching out to content creators, but also in sort of this whole contest model, which is really interesting, where brands will basically say like, tag your ex brand denim look on Instagram and maybe we'll feature you. And so, you know, it's, it's essentially free advertising, which word of mouth advertising is nothing new, but it's on because of social media. It's on this massive scale where these brands are encouraging people to promote their branded goods um, with no pay and just these promises of either exposure or visibility. And certainly with regulation, I mean, it's an, uh, UK, I think, has been much more stringent in terms of requiring disclosures. It's just been within the past, I would say, six weeks or so that the Federal Trade Commission, which is the US regulatory system, has cracked down and not just reaching out to the brand retailers and saying, you must disclose this, but also going after individual bloggers. But it's incredibly hard to enforce because what happens a lot of times is the blogger or Instagram influencer will put sort of this blanket statement um on their blog saying, you know, some of the the goods I've received are part of commercial deals. Um and so it's kind of this cover all, but but how do you know? Because the entire system of influencer marketing is predicated on these principles of again realness and authenticity which get completely deflated if you realize that, hey, the advertiser sent us this and asked us to post this and not only asked us, but said, you know, they're they're going to pay us so much money. And so there's so many, you know, stakeholders in this kind of complicated system and there's so many unequal and lopsided relationships within this.
0: I mean, the, the question that prompts is, is, I guess, a kind of, what should we do? Um, because obviously, you know, you've outlined in the book outlines that there are some things about um, this new form uh, of occupation, a new form of labor that are really deeply problematic, that are clearly highly exploitative, that, you know, the kind of almost winner-take-all markets for this kind of, kind of labor means that there are, you know, lots of losers who, you know, um, get burnt out, you know, have, you know, kind of really uh unpleasant times trying to get involved in this stuff that's related to broader social inequalities and yet there are big winners people love it you know it, for some people it's like you know kind of just the thing they've always wanted to do it is literally doing what they love so i guess yeah you know what what if anything actually should we do
1: well i think you know one of the the first steps is to draw attention to the realities of this system um, and I kind of nodded to this before, but mainstream media and pop culture discourses play a crucial role in in circulating this myth. I mean, every other day I feel like I come across an article that's, you know, ex-Instagrammer gets $15,000 a post or, you know, again, the, the blonde salad is making $8 million a year. And um, it's a very salient narrative in popular culture that focuses on the winners but, but conceals the realities. And so I think one of the vital ways to redress this is to use these same platforms to call attention to the inherent lopsidedness of this. And so I closed the book giving the ca- um, cases of two.
0: I, yeah, the, I really like the O'Neill case because that, you know, it sort of shows the almost, you know, the kind of, Uh, the insanity of, of the system that that Uh people are trying to get into. Um, and yeah, it's probably worth telling that story actually.
1: Yeah. So, um, with with O'Neill, she was, I guess this was about a year and a half ago, but she was an Australian Instagrammer who seemed to have this, this dream life. And she was again, dream career getting paid for her Instagram shots and she very publicly announced she was not just quitting social media, um, but went back and re-edited a lot of her, the photos she had posted to draw attention to both the labor that went into these, but also the emotional toll it was taking to create a certain image of herself, of this sort of airbrush perfection on Instagram. And so, you know, it, right immediately after that, there was a lot of backlash that this is just a publicity stunt. Um, but she has essentially kind of fallen off the map. I tried to look her up because I would love to chat with her. And she really has has stayed away from social media. And, you know, I think one of the reasons that example got so much attention is it was telling the other side of it. It was drawing attention to the problems in the system. Um, and another case I really liked is... Um, I think, yeah, this was published in fusion. It was by Gabby Dunn, who's a YouTube content creator who I interviewed for the book. And she, she posted this story on kind of the sad economics of internet fame. And, And Gabby Dunn is very well known in the YouTube community, but, but she basically was saying like, it is really hard to make a living. And it's not just hard to make a living for YouTubers, but they will you know, they can't very well go out to their audiences and tell them that they're working at Starbucks or they're working at a diner because that kind of deflates the image that they've created. And so they're, they're kind of forced to confront the economic realities of being a professional YouTuber, but not being able to reveal what life is like sort of when the, when the camera is off. And so both with the Dunn case and with O'Neill, they were providing a very different perspective. And I think the reason these two cases got so much publicity is because they challenged this, this larger myth of idealized and dream careers. And I think those are the kind of cases and kind of these providing these revelations that can suggest um, again, how, how lopsided this is and that this is, This work for exposure model very rarely pays off. And if it does, it comes with a whole host of other inequalities and challenges and so forth. Um, And again, I think, you know, the, the similarities between this aspirational labor system on social media and the unpaid internships structure are are very striking. And so relying on the same forms of support and um, advocacy that we're increasingly seeing for freelancers and, and internships, I think that's a useful model for this emergent form of the social media ecosystem to follow, to look for kind of prescriptions for redressing these these problematic elements.
0: I mean, it seems almost kind of slightly a bit mean to kind of say you know you've done this wonderful book now what are you going to do next but um, <laughs> what what kind of stuff are, are you sort of thinking about you know thinking through uh, at the moment um you know are you kind of um you you'd said previous stuff around kind of uh women in publishing have you got another sort of creative industries project or you know i mean obviously the kind of um the lessons around work and occupations from the social media book, I think, you know, can apply to, to lots of other areas as you, as you've indicated. So are you kind of moving on to, um, to something completely different?
1: Um, it's still within the same genre. I've started a project, um, last year and I'm about to start interviews that focuses on a different form of gender labor in media industries, which is this new position of social media editor. And what I find is so interesting about it is essentially companies are hiring young people to run their social media feeds. And, you know, this is essentially a new form of invisible labor like PR where, you know, the the work of tweeting and commenting and posting Instagram photos is concealed behind the screen but it's incredibly valued to these companies. And so I want to go into these work cultures and see what the work of social media editors may say about kind of larger transitions in work. And so one thing we have found, I was working with a student and we were looking at how these companies advertise these positions. And it's really fascinating to see kind of the glamorous spin they put on essentially working around the clock. Because if you were a social media editor, you are tethered to... Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And so they, they put this kind of, you know, you you're you're flexible because you work different hours, but it's essentially this this 24 set 24 hour a day, seven days a week job to run and curate these new branded spaces. So yeah, it's looking at kind of gendered and work cultures surrounding this new position of social media editor.
0: Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, we are discussing Not Getting Paid to Do What You Love, Gender, Social Media, and Aspirational Work, which is written by Professor Brooke Erin Duffy.